All right, Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's Sam's fault. He should have got those yeah. for you. Um, we have, we're going to pick up, there's a huge chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 57 where we left off last week. It says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. So God has sent, uh, so far this chapter, God sent Gabriel. It's like the first Christmas card ever sent, only it was in person. It's a Christmasogram from Gabriel, and, and he went to Zacharias in the temple, and he went to Mary at her home. And uh, Zacharias serves as a priest that was going to be praying in the, the uh, Holy of Holies and doing incense before the Lord. And um, Mary is a teenage girl that has no standing and no, not even a family listed with her. So she's just kind of there. She's betrothed to a guy named Joseph, who's in the line of David. And here we see the promise that was made to those two getting fulfilled at the end of the chapter. Um, verse 24, this is a, a great mercy that's going on. Elizabeth's pregnancy is hidden. from. She goes into hiding. She's setting herself aside. She's praying. Um, but Mary's told by Gabriel that Elizabeth is pregnant. She goes to Elizabeth. She hangs out. We get that great welcome from Elizabeth last week where she just is a friend to Mary and gives her shelter. Um, Mary avoids then getting stoned for getting pregnant during betrothal, and they rejoice with her, and there's a gladness that's coming with this. There's a celebration that's happening. The people in the family know that this is a big deal, and they're excited about it. So there's a big party. We get a fulfillment of verse 14. They're all rejoicing. And then it says, when Elizabeth's time, full time came, that means she's had nine months and she's about to give birth to John the Baptist. When this happens, when in traditionally in Jewish culture, when they were about to give birth, they would hire musicians. And so it's kind of like a funeral. At a funeral, you'd hire mourners that would be crying loudly so that somebody's crying for the, the past. But at the opposite time of life, when people are getting born, they would have a party and they would be going. So Elizabeth's in her room, probably with, you know, there aren't glass windows in a lot of these Middle Eastern houses. She can hear the music happening outside. The music serves two purposes. It makes it so Elizabeth can yell as loud as she wants. And nobody hears the pain. Because they know that this childbirth is a kind of a curse. The pain of it's a curse. So in Jewish culture, they bring these musicians in, and they want it to be a time of celebration, and they bring music to make that happen. And, and that's the second purpose of it. So Elizabeth can yell. Everybody else can rejoice and, and do it. So when the time comes when they shout, it's a boy in this case, everyone would burst into song and celebration, and there were traditional songs they would sing for this and it would be a major event. The whole town would know that it was happening because they would get loud and a new baby is going to be born. Now, if you think of this and you think of any kind of sizable populations, like there's likely one of these things going on pretty regularly if you're in a town the size of Jerusalem. But if you're out into the countryside, this is a pretty rare event for them. So they all gather together. It becomes a big thing. In verse 59, where it says on the eighth day, this is a big deal in Jewish tradition. So this is when they get circumcised. Circumcision starts from Genesis 17, verse 12. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male in your generation. It's also in Leviticus 12.3. It's it's, so it's, it's a law that gets repeated multiple times. Why the eighth day are you cutting into a baby? Like this seems kind of like odd, right? So, and, and I won't get into the full details of circumcision. We'll keep it PG today. If you want to ask me more details and you don't know what that is, check Google. So God said to do it is one reason they do it on the eighth day. Like for some, that's sufficient. God said so. Medically speaking, in 1943, two researchers, Dam and Dozy, did research on this. And they studied this and they found that there is a, in fact, these two actually identified vitamin K. So it's a kind of vitamin that reaches its highest place. And there's also a thing called prothrombin. Prothrombin helps the blood to clot. And vitamin K starts to get produced by the introduction of prothrombin into the system. So when a baby's in the womb, they don't need this. They live off of their mom's um, uh, immune system and clotting systems and whatnot. But after they're born, it takes a few days for this to kick in. You can give birth in a swimming pool and they don't even start breathing immediately. Like you got to put them and expose them to air before the lungs kick in. And when they do, they take that first breath and it's kind of a moment for the baby. They usually cry. But with the prothrombin and the vitamin K, it happens, medically speaking, um, in the first seven days, there isn't a lot of blood clotting activity, but then the system kicks in and it's like the first breath that's super deep, right? After you come out of the water, the production of prothrombin and vitamin K is at its peak on day eight of the child, which seems to be like a happy coincidence or God knew exactly what he was doing. And he actually knew how the body worked. So of all the days of your life, the height point on prothrombin and blood clotting and vitamin K, which helps to heal and seal wounds, uh, is on the eighth day of your life, and then it levels out for the rest of your life. So this is the day that the child gets named, too. So they, they would it's the naming day of the child. Uh, they had seven days to get to meet the child, where the child was still kind of nameless, child two. And this is in part because in the ancient world, babies died a lot. So they didn't always make it. And this is like our chickens. Like I t- keep telling Steph and Katie, don't name the chickens because they, bad things happen to chickens. And I, and I think this tradition is partially there because bad things happen to little babies. They're vulnerable. And so until that those systems kick in or whatever, just not naming it can save a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Um, but they, are, they, they, give, they get names at this point. The Bible makes a big deal out of giving names. And how those names are there. Like I'm thinking of what kind of dad names his kids Elijah and David. Like there's something to that dad. It says something about the dad. Abraham and Sarah then get new names as they are as they have children and they need the name of this child by day seven. So there is a blessing on this day of circumcision, this day of naming kids. If you go back into Jewish records, they say this when they name the child and they use the child's name. I'm just going to name, I'm going to use the name Sean. May this little one, Sean, be great. Just as he has entered into the covenant of circumcision, may he also enter into the Torah, the marriage canopy, and into good deeds. And this gets wished. It's kind of like what some Christian traditions do when they, when they baptize a baby. It's kind of this initial blessing that the community puts over the baby. And so all that's happening today um, with baby John, and they can't say the blessing without the kid's name. So the fact that Zacharias is mute, he can't proclaim it. He could write it and scratch it on a notepad, but apparently the dad needs to proclaim it. 
So when they're saying we're just going to name him Zacharias, that's like Zacharias two or three or junior, or whatever. However, it's kind of traditional to do that. But the mom's trying to step in saying, no, 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 that's not the name. And they would have done this. Zacharias is a good man. Clearly, if he was given the sacrifice at the temple, he's a respected man, a renowned man. So to be Zacharias, the son of Zacharias, that has a lot of reputation attached to it. Right? So the mom steps in. Elizabeth says, no, his name's going to be called John. And frankly, for our strong-willed women in the group, Elizabeth is probably somebody to get to know. Right? So as you get to heaven and you're standing in line, this is a woman that kind of defies culture here and steps in and crosses the line saying, I'm going to name the child. And, uh, of course, the community ignores her, and they said to her, there's no one among your relevants who's called by this name. So they get into an argument. you got the elders of the town arguing with Elizabeth about what the kid's name is. Elizabeth, however, has talked to Gabriel, and the crowd maybe doesn't know that. So with as with much um, of what we talk about, the insiders know what's going on. The outsiders really don't. And so there's an argument. Elizabeth is um, still the mother, so they're at an impasse. you got all the town elders versus the mother. Who's the tiebreaker? Zacharias. So it's verse 62. They made signs to his father. And frankly, okay, this is really funny. He wasn't deaf. He was mute. So the fact that they're making signs to him, like he had to be kind of annoyed by that. Like, I can hear you just fine. But they make signs to his father. What would he have? What? he would have him called. And so he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote saying his name is John. So they all marveled. What are they marveling at? The fact that a husband agrees with a wife, right? Like, but they're, so, you know, at this point that, you know, thinking they have some say in what the kid's name is going to be, I think is kind of odd, but the writing tablet of this part of time, if you want to just get the picture in your head, they would use slate just like we do today, but instead of chalk, they would cover the slate tablet with wax, and then you would wipe away the wax to write on the tablet. And so um, erasers back then would just be like the back of your hand. You just kind of smudge the wax back up, and then you could rewrite on it. I like that he says his name is John. It's not an opinion. It's not I think it should be. It's a past tense statement where there's no conversation. And I like this as a husband. Like, he just backs his wife. My wife said it. That's what his name is. And, I, and the fact that there's just this relationship between Zacharias and Elizabeth is probably why God picked them to give birth to the greatest prophet the earth has ever seen. Zacharias has questioned Gabriel, but here his faith is without reservation. He doesn't need to know. He knows it. And it's in the past tense. In verse 18, if you look back, he said, how shall I know? But in verse 63, he knows. So Zacharias has learned. He's grown. He's got experience and his faith has now been proven out and so by saying his name is john he gives the kid a unique name it means jehovah is gracious beautiful name that we still use today quite commonly and they all marveled zacharias was expected to bless israel nine months ago with a gracious kind of thing and the and what he uses right now is he uses the name john which means grace And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. His praise isn't justified in this just because he got his speech back. He's praising God because John has been born. So his profession of faith, even on a tablet, fulfills what the angel said. 
you're gonna you're not gonna be able to speak until this is finished and it's proven. It's interesting that that didn't happen at birth. It happened on day eight when Zacharias proclaimed the name was John. And so the fulfillment of that, he's not he gets his speech back on day eight of the child, and the first thing to come out of his mouth is a praise for the Lord. And then you got a kind of an editorial note in verse 65 and 66. The author kind of steps in and he adds this little piece here. Then fear came on all those who were around them. And he just finished in 64 saying they marveled. So he's expanding on that. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them that kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. This is, I think for Luke, it's important. He's a historian. He wants us to know everyone in this small town knew this story. And everyone marveled, like this was a community event. And we're going to see with Luke that everything he documents, it didn't happen in secret rooms in the corner. It happened out in public. In other words, anyone who read this first generation could challenge any of these points. Luke would say, you go visit this town and you tell me I'm wrong. But this is what all the people in this town testify to. So he's making that point in verse 65, all the hill country of Judea. That's not just a particular village. It's all the villages we're telling this story. And that's kind of a, that's a momentous kind of thing that he's saying. And then fear came on all who dwelt around them. Not only is it very public, but there is a honoring of the fact that God's doing something on earth and this is happening right amongst us. So that should make you fearful. If you believe God's powerful and that God judges and God rewards, you you stop for a second and say, am I going to get judged or am I going to get reward? So the birth of John the Baptist, the speaking of Zacharias, Luke is able to confirm this um, uh, and get many confirmations of this story. So he puts it there. And all those who heard, it was common knowledge. Luke also shares a common question they all had, which is, okay, what's next? What happens after this? This is pretty amazing. Like, honestly, put it into today's context. So let's say Sam and, and his future wife have a, you know, he gets mute for nine months. He's coming to church and we, we just, we can't hear him because he has to use a wax tablet for nine months. And then all of a sudden he goes, his name is Sean. And like, he can speak again. And people are like, dang, what happened there? And they're all starting to talk about it. Like God's doing something. He's moving amongst us. And Zacharias is there. What kind of child will this be is the question in verse 66. What in the heck is this kid going to grow up to do? And so we get 30 years of that question. Like everybody's watching John. Can you imagine being John the Baptist growing up? You go to school and your teachers know this story. All your classmates know this story. Like it had to be weird, like to the point where he doesn't really connecting with the community because everybody treats him as a little separate. When we see him next, he's wearing camel hair, eating locusts in the wilderness because he's just done with it all. And there's something going on with how this works, but he kind of becomes a social like pariah. But he is from the day he's born, he gets separated like this. What kind of child is this? And the hand of the Lord was with him. That's vague. What does that mean? Frankly, it means that you could write a whole multi-book series that's historical fiction, The Life of John the Baptist. The Lord's just with this guy. I know people like this. Everything seems to fall right for these people. And it gets you a little jealous. Like, wow, this person can fall off anything and they always land on their feet. How does that work? How does it happen? And people watch John the Baptist and everything seems to just 
the the nomenclature around him is the Lord's just with that guy. And imagine him being 12, year, 12 years old and stuff comes out of his mouth that's the Holy Spirit inspired. Remember, he was kicking in his mom's womb because the Holy Spirit was affecting him as he was a fetus. What's he like when he's 5, 10, 20, 25 years old, 30 years old? And he's like, I'm going to go out to the wilderness and just preach it. Okay. And thousands of people go out to hear this guy. They've been listening to him for a long time. John the Baptist is known. He's famous. Herod knows who he is. Like, so he's, his, he's, the Lord is with him and people know who he is. His dad was a priest serving in the temple. He's a prophet out in the wilderness and he's firstborn. So he should be serving the temple. What happened so that John the Baptist isn't serving in the temple? Bible doesn't point that out because that's not the focus of Luke. The focus of Luke is Jesus. But we get Zacharias's prophecy. When Mary celebrates, she gives the, the, the uh, Magnificat, the Song of Mary. When Zacharias is able to speech, which comes out of his mouth, is called in the Latin the Benedictus. It's where we get the term benediction. And he said, now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and then it gets into this Benedictus piece. And, and we see again in Luke, and I just want to keep pointing this out in Luke because it's a theme for Luke, that the Holy Spirit is filling him. I'm fascinated by this idea. What does it mean for a Holy Spirit to fill me? I know what it means for an angry spirit to fill me. I know what it means for an impatient spirit to fill me. What does it look like when a Holy Spirit infills me? And I just have this amazing supernatural grace that I can't take credit for. Or a word comes out that I'm like, I don't know how I figured that out. It's a budding theme in the book of Luke. Gabriel, verse 13. Elizabeth, verse 41. Mary, verse 46. Now Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit becomes a theme in the book of Luke. No one person announced to Israel that God was speaking again after Malachi. It's been 430 years. And, and it's important for Luke that we have three people and one angel that are all testifying with the Holy Spirit. God's speaking. And he's moving amongst the people. So he prophesied. That's a claim. The word prophecy means to speak the words of God. Prophecy isn't always foretelling the future. Sometimes it's just the word of God comes to mind and you speak it. And so it can be, it's any time you speak and you're claiming that the words of God are coming out of your mouth. Of anything, of anything that Zacharias could pronounce, this is a claim that God named John. And the Holy Spirit is behind that. So last word from Malachi, if you look at Malachi 4.6, the last word of the Old Testament is the word curse. The first word, the first prophetic word that comes out in the book of Luke is the word, verse 68, blessed. And there's perfect symmetry between Luke and that end of the Old Testament. So here we go. Here's the, here's the Benedictus. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. I love that. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. We're going to break down the Benedictus. Um, when Mary says her words in the Holy Spirit, she's really just blessing the Lord as a person, right? It's this holy prayer that she sends up. Zacharias 
is when the Holy Spirit's speaking through him, it's a universal, like he's talking to the world. And so he's excited about Jesus. He hasn't even met Jesus yet. And the word blessed there is in the Greek, eulogetos. It's where we get the word eulogy. Um, in the Latin, the same word is benedictus, which means to adore, to bless, or praise. We use the word blessed in my translation. Bless the Lord God of Israel. Not any God, not a God that he's made up, not a God that he thinks is up there, not your God, not my God, but the Lord God of Israel. It's being very specific. This is not the universal spirit that he's blessing. He's blessing the God of Israel. The word Lord there, Lord there means authority or controller or master. The word God is theos in the Greek. It means a divinity. So the master divinity of Israel, indeclinable in the Hebrew, or Israel means wrestler with God. <laughs> the master divinity of those that wrestle with God. Interesting. Lord God of Israel, just to be clear who we're talking about, for he has visited you. Visited theirs in the past tense. He's talking about Christophanies. And those of you that come to the evening Bible study and we do the Old Testament, we've seen a few of those Christophanies where there is a nameless individual in human form that claims the divinity of God. He appears multiple times in the Old Testament. He has visited, could also be a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. There's multiple references to the cloud that oversits the mercy seat on the ark. And there's, or the cloud that's over the tabernacle and guides Moses and the Israelites around. Past and present, there's a visiting that happens. Present tense, he has visited. Mary still has a child in the womb, but the child, the light or the spark of life has already happened. So he redeems his people. The word redemption there literally means to pay a price for people. He's buying people. What's the price he pays? Because he doesn't care about Caesar's money. So what's the thing that he's talking about there? It's interesting that this is claimed to be from the Holy Spirit because he's saying things that Zacharias would have no idea that Jesus would be redeeming or paying for things. It's interesting, though. He could be looking at this, Exodus 15, 13. In your mercy, you and your mercy have led forth the people who you have redeemed and guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. There's a mirror of this in the Old Testament. God purchased or redeemed the people from Egypt. You don't get to take away worship from my people. They're my people now. And God pays a price for them. It's the Passover, right? All the firstborns get killed. Lamb gets, there's blood of the lamb over the doorpost. All being an image of what's about to happen with Jesus. He has visited. He's intervened before for his people. He has called them out of Egypt or the world to live a life of holiness and righteousness. And he's doing it again as the claim of Zacharias. That's what he's saying. He's visited again. And the guiding and the habitation that have been with the tabernacle in Jerusalem and the temple are going to be, right now, the Holy Spirit speaking through Zacharias. It's moving to humans. And verse 69, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The word it has raised up is in the infinitive form. He has raised up, he is raising up, he will raise up. It's in all tenses. God has raised something up. And the horn of salvation reference, again, there's so much in here. The redemption and the salvation, two elements. He's bought us and he's saved us. I can buy something but never go pick it up. I just have it on call at Home Depot. I've paid the price. They've taken it on my credit card. But if I don't show up to claim it, I don't actually have the product. 
And the idea of this kind of an odd use of the word redemption, it's an economical term. The fact that he has purchased the price for humanity, but he hasn't picked them up yet is an interesting little quandary we have. But according to that, he has raised up a horn of salvation to save someone for us in his servant, David. Zacharias isn't talking, I hope you notice, he's not talking about John the Baptist. Zacharias is not in the throne of David or in the line of David. He's talking about Mary. He's talking about Jesus. This is kind of cool. The horn of salvation here that he's talking about is not this kid that they just named and circumcised. And he's speaking to everybody in the community. The horn of salvation has two uses in the Old Testament. Both of them, horn of salvation is in 1 Samuel 22.3, Psalm 18.2. Both uses of this phrase are in reference to God himself. They're not in reference to a human being ever. This is important for those that want to humanize Jesus. Because right up front, Zacharias is claiming that the horn of salvation has visited. Right? So Psalm 18.2, here's an example. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God and my strength, whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. So Zacharias is ascribing a name that in the Old Testament is reserved for God, and he's claiming it of, of this new Savior that's showing up. Hebrews 2.9 calls... By the way, if you call a human God in the Jewish tradition, that's called blasphemy. The consequence for blasphemy is death. So Zacharias is prof- prophesying things in the Holy Spirit that could get him killed with the Jewish people. <laughs> And frankly, Jesus does claim this, and he does get killed for it. They actually follow the law. Hebrews 2.9 calls Jesus the captain of salvation, a personification of this title of God. So he's raised up for himself salvation. He also raises up himself for us in the house of his servant David. This is about Messiah. I just want to make that really clear. The word John, Jehovah's gracious. The word Jesus, Jehovah's salvation. Because God is gracious, he saves. So this is about God. It's about Messiah. Psalm 132, 11. I'll give you another one. The Lord has sworn truth to David. He will not turn for it. I'll set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And there I'll make the horn of David grow. And I'll prepare a lamp for my anointed. Like the promise is clear. And Zacharias using a term like horn of salvation He's referencing all of these messianic passages. And the Jewish people would know this. He's had nine months to think about it where he can't talk. I don't know about you, but like if you're in a position where you can't talk to people, like you get time to think. And sometimes people don't want to think because what goes on in their head is not good. So then they busy themselves with talking to people. But Zacharias has been forced to have nine months where he can't communicate. And he's been thinking about this a long time. So the fact that these are the first words out of his mouth are kind of cool. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who've been since the world began. That's an interesting phrase. So it's more than just Israel. He's expanding this. Israel didn't exist when the world began, yet people spoke in the Holy Spirit prior to Israel. So Zacharias, again, saying this is not deflating, but actually showing a wider breadth of prophecy throughout history. As he spoke, God does what he says he would, and then it says, since the world began. How far back do we want to go? Well, he could be directing us back to Deuteronomy 4, because this is the word of God saying this. Verse 31, and I'll read verse 39. Deuteronomy 4 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. 
He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. After 430 years, they might be thinking God forgot about us. He's not going to move. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. That's an interesting kind of promise. God's not just a God of the heavens. He's actually God on earth here too. This is an interesting promise. And Zacharias is saying like, God hasn't forgotten about these promises. And he's still there. So many prophets, one voice, one Holy Spirit, connecting them to a God that's inspiring all of them across generations. God used Israel in a special way, and yet he's not limited to Israel either. God is the God of all things. Verse 71 in our chapter says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Historically, if he's talking about Israel, this has been kind of true. God has held Israel up. Like Egypt tried to wipe them out. The Canaanites tried to kill them. Amalekites tried to, like they were wandering on a path as refugees and the Amalekites attacked them. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Abbasids, the Turks, the Ottomans, the Germans, the Russians. The Arabs are currently trying to make a go of it, centered on Iran. Good luck, Iran, because all those other countries I just named have politically been decimated after they tried to go after Israel. It just doesn't work. But, you know, Iran, maybe they're the ones that know the trick. Good luck. He's saved Israel from every empire that's ever attacked the Jews, and they still exist. May 14th, 1948, they were handed a country by the British. They didn't win it by wars. They didn't win it by battles. And then on the same day, they were attacked by four larger, economically more powerful, and actual military forces attacked them on the same day. The result of that battle, Israel not only beat them, but beat them back. Like, it's an absolute miracle within, you know, a generation of our lifetime. The existence of Israel only exists, the argument of the Bible is, because God's got a hand over them. So all those other nations kind of fall into the history books, but somehow or another, this little sliver of land the size of New Hampshire is still there, surrounded by people who want them off the planet. So why is he doing this? Verse 72 to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The whole purpose of God's protection around Israel is that the Messiah was going to come through Israel. And there's a purpose in Revelation too, which is why they're still sitting there. So not to have John, but for God to perform mercy. The verbs so far in the Benedictus, visited, redeemed, raised up, spoke to perform mercy. Like this is, he's claiming Messiah and the walk of Messiah. What's the mercy that he's talking about? Again, you look back at the Old Testament and, and he's speaking God's words right now. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He's actually going to take a beating for us. Specifically, we don't deserve to have the sins forgiven. We've all done things that are bad, wrong. We know that. And there's a justice that has to be met there. The purpose of mercy is to just say you're excused. Yes, you're guilty, but I'm not going to punish you for that. So he provides this path to mercy, this elimination of sin. I don't have to argue or defend myself. I just have to call upon the name of Jesus. My sins are forgiven. That's the deal. And it's not just this new idea. He promised that seed would come and would become a sin offering all the way back since the world began. And this pleases God, Isaiah 53, 4. 
He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spent my God and afflictive. Then the next verse is, if you go down a few verses, verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why is God doing all this? Because he actually, for some strange reason, loves people like you and me. And he wants us to be in the kingdom and to just live a life of joy. That's the mercy that's promised. The salvation, the salvation from earthly foes with Israel, the salvation from spiritual foes with you and me in the church. That's what he promised. Then he bears the iniquities of many, that justifies many. That's what we call mercy. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This goes way back. The seed was, it was promised to Eve that her seed would, would undo this sin problem. And so Genesis 22, verse 16, and he said, by myself I have sworn, because who else does God swear by? Says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, talking about Isaac, Blessed I will, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God found one guy, Abraham, and he said, I'm going to bring my Messiah through you. And as it goes through the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, then he narrows it down to David, then he narrows it down to Solomon. And he says, I'm going to bring, the, I mean, he's telling us where the guy's going to come from. And then in verse 74 in our chapter, to grant us that we, I want to point out that that's in the present tense. Zacharias isn't talking about the Old Testament in verse 74. He's flipping that forward. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The purpose of this is that we can actually have a different kind of life. God's kept his end of the bargain. He's fulfilled it. The messianic age has started, and God is starting this everlasting kingdom of the seed, which is holy and righteous. The enemies here that he's talking about grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, Zechariah isn't talking about the Ammonites. If he's in the present tense, the enemies might be the Romans. But I think more specifically, when we hear Jesus' ministry, the enemies are those that are spiritual. The enemy is ourself, the world around us, and an actual spiritual army trying to get at us too. So you got three major enemies in life. You, the world, and the demonic forces that might pay attention to you at some point. Good luck with that fight. The good news is you don't have to do that on your own. In fact, you're going to lose that on your own. With the Holy Spirit, which is Luke's emphasis, you don't fight that battle on your own. You fight that battle with the power of God behind you, which absolutely trumps those other three things. You're like, yeah, but I'm still fighting every day. Keep fighting. Keep leaning on the Lord. The purpose of the trials and the fights and the stuff is so that you learn to live leaning on the Lord. You don't learn to live in your own strength. It's funny how we can hear that, but until we live it, we just don't know it. The real enemies of humanity are sin and death, and we all live under this shadow that we're going to die someday. It gets worse the older you get. Honestly, have your first heart flutter when you're in your 40s, and you're like, dang, I'm not going to live forever, right? You pass out once or twice. Cause, you know, For me, I was ice fishing in my 30s, and I was squatting down trying to cut the ice fishing hole. I just passed out cold. All my friends thought I was, they were like, you got to go to a hospital. What it was is I had low red cell count, which that doesn't happen when you're 10. You can squat all day when you're 10. 
you get in your 30s, you try to bend over your fat belly for too long, you pass out. You cut off your blood flow. You're not going to live forever, and we all live under that shadow. God keeps his end of the bargain that death isn't something we have to fear anymore. If you trust in God, at least, if you don't, you have another whole kind of endeavor going on. So God's starting this everlasting kingdom. The enemies aren't the Ammonites of old. The enemies are today's enemies, the enemies of sin and death. Hebrews 2.9 makes this really clear. When we see Jesus, who has made who is made little lower than angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everybody. Jesus took it, so we don't have to. Insomuch as then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, he incarnated, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The bad thing about being scared of things is you're in bondage to whatever you're scared of. If you're scared of dying, then you try to live as hard as you can and you put all your effort into life. But you're in bondage to it at that point. If you're scared of a bad guy invading your house, you spend all of your attention trying to secure the house. And at the end of the day, death's going to get into your house. So what happens afterwards? Thank goodness we're eternal beings. Our flesh is just a tent we walk around in. All the days of our life, which is everlasting, past, present, and future that's there at the end of the verse. Where Jesus beats death, verse 9, we can stand with him and have nothing left to fear. That's the whole point. Luke's doing this in chapter 1, let me point this out. These, this Magnificat of Mary and the Benedictus of Zacharias is like the thesis statement at the beginning of the gospel. It's telling us the whole plan here. And then verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. So now he's talking about John, right? They're at the, remember, we are at a child dedication ceremony right now. And all of a sudden he's talking Messiah. But now he turns to John. You're going to be the prophet of the highest. How does he know this in day one? And the fact that he's saying this publicly, again, is part of what blows my mind. This isn't stuff done in a closet or in a basement. It's done in front of the whole town. This is predicted. For you will go before the face of the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, which is the day spring from on high who has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Awesome. John's given the title prophet from eight days old. No one has had that title for 430 years, but Zacharias gives it to this baby. This is a prophet of God. So if Zacharias is wrong in that, he should be, by Jewish law, he should be killed. If John the Baptist grows up and he starts saying he's a prophet and he says things that aren't true, he should be killed. But he doesn't get killed by the Jews. He gets killed by Herod. And meaning the Jews, he said things and they came to be as God said them. It says, for the highest, using an exaltation instead of Yahweh, um, says you'll go before the Old Testament uh, is using this face of God idea and that he's going to go stand in front of God. That puts him at kind of a level with Moses who went before God. And to prepare here that indicates a precursor, you're going to happen as a precursor to the face of the Lord being with us incarnate. Going to prepare his ways. John's going to call people to repentance. He sets up living what they call the way. The first baby step of living for Jesus is to repent and to relent of sin. So I'm just kind of done with that. 
And that's what John the Baptist's entire ministry is going to be dedicated to. He goes out in the wilderness, and anybody that wants to come listen, he says, just stop doing the stuff that God hates. Knock it off. Try to live in a different kind of way. So he's preparing the way for the Lord, because to begin that path with Jesus, we're going to get Jesus' teachings too. But to even start on that path, repent. Just stop thinking you're so great. Back off and humble yourself before a living God. That's what John the Baptist preached. You're not God. He is. And if you can embrace that singular idea, your life can get a whole lot better. So John makes it clear. He calls out sin. He truthfully rejects it. And he calls everybody else to do it too. Why? Because Jesus is coming. This doesn't sound a lot different from the message of the church. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Only in the church we actually get to hang out and make boats together. Like there's a benefit at this point after Jesus. Prepare the way. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of sins. Again, I feel like I can't get up past the fact that I'm in chapter one. Right? All of this is getting laid out by Luke right up front. What's John the Baptist's role? To give knowledge. He explains how it works to people that come listen to him. You make a trip up to the wilderness. Like for us, that's like going up to like Brainerd. You want to make the trip up to Brainerd to hear that prophet in the woods? He's just going to sit there and tell you to knock off your sin, and then he's going to teach you in the knowledge of the Lord. He's going to teach you the Bible. That's the reward, and he's going to point to it. The salvation of his people, future tense. Israel has had salvation in Egypt, but this is a future tense salvation. There's a salvation that's coming that's greater than what happened with Israel. So Jesus gives his plan going forward, and he gives a plan of salvation. The word remission there is not the same word as redeemed. Redeemed is to purchase something. Remission is to forgive or pardon something. So God has bought us so that he can forgive and pardon us. Not a military salvation, a spiritual salvation. And earthly salvation doesn't erase death. You can win a military conquest against the Romans and you're still going to die. But you can win at a life with Jesus and then you are promised eternal life. You are eternal. Through the tender mercy of our God, verse 78, why does he do it? Because God loves people. He doesn't wish for anyone to perish. That's the purpose of his pausing. And then this verse, and I I just like this line because you get these words in the Bible that are just unique, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Day spring means in, in the Greek, a rising light. It also means the word east, which is where the sun comes up on the other side or the first quarter of the morning. So that's the day spring is when the sun is new in the sky. So to call and to make this a proper noun and a title, that's kind of interesting. It gives you a new light with Matthew 2, 2, where it says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the day spring in the east. Uses the same word. It's fascinating when you go back to 2009 scholars at Northwestern University were looking at microscopic images of when the sperm meets the egg for the first time there's something that amazing happens I'm going to encourage you to go look this one up because you kind of see it in video at the very first inception of a new life where two groups of DNA combine to make a third new DNA there is a small microscopic flash of light that happens at inception kind of awesome go check that stuff out so when zacharias is talking about this tender mercy of god which is the day spring from on high that he's visited us there is a light that comes in john chapter one says 
He is the light of the world. And there's this idea of God bringing light into earthly physical existence is, is one of those kinds of things that smart people just sit and dwell on and think about and bask in. This is a metaphysical interaction. And the claim of this day spring from on high, which has visited us, is the transition from a godly to an incarnate existence for this time or this season. So we have this east light that is going to visit us, this day spring that is the mercy of God that will come visit us. And that is, just like Abraham, God's going to provide himself a sacrifice instead of the son, God's going to step in. And he did with Isaac, too. He provided a sacrifice for Abraham that was a temporary animal. But as he incarnates himself, he's bringing in a very eternal existence being to be the sacrifice for us. He's going to give up his only son. So it's through salvation from sins that the day spring is given. It's a spiritual illumination. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's you and me. We are limited by our cognizance. We're limited by our senses. We live in the shadow of death. That's us. Great news for Sunday morning. So if you're planning to die at some point, this includes you. You qualify because you live under that shadow. Uh, if you can't, if, if you can see what's beyond the material life, um, or you lack the ability to see what's on beyond the physical, you then qualify in this category. You're limited by your senses. You're sitting in the dark. You don't see everything. And I love the fact that there are actually physical realities of this too. And I think it's God's way of saying, eh, see, you don't know it all. And we think of a rainbow and we see a spectrum with six colors on it. You know there's a color on either side of that, right? Ultraviolet and, and infrared that we actually can't perceive with our own eyes. We need tools to do it. And I think God did things like that within the spectrum of light itself to show us you don't see everything and you don't know everything. Stop pretending you do. What amazed me when I got my doctorate is being around a lot of people that thought they knew everything and they understood everything. And it's what we call the ivory tower syndrome, right? They get so expert in one very narrow thing, but then they think they know everything about everything else. It's a very dangerous situation for intellectuals. Can you see how this works? So whatever philosophy, human endeavor, whatever security, refuge, wherever you think you've got your provision made for yourself, you're in the dark. There's elements you don't see. And it's spiritual, not just physical. It goes well beyond the spectrum of light. It goes to your whole life. There's simply elements you can't see on either side. Jesus says you walk the straight and narrow path. There's many that go by the wide path, but there's very few that find that straight path. The Old Testament calls the word of God itself a light. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. The actual Bible that we read is called a light. And in this sense where he's calling this Jesus, he doesn't have the name Jesus yet, but he's calling the day spring a light. This is interesting. Because God's the horn of salvation. The word of God is the light to our feet. He's calling Jesus all of these things. So he's naming Messiah as the fulfillment of every single one of these things, including the seed. So John 8, 12, then Jesus spoke to them again and he said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He actually calls himself the light of life, which the Old Testament calls the Bible. Pretty amazing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
right? He hovered over like we saw at the beginning of Luke. And then he announced, let there be light. Boom. Why? To guide our feet in the way of peace is the verse, is what Zacharias says right out of his own. Why do we have light? So we can walk. We can live. We don't have to live like imprisoned with our own garbage. We can just live free of that. No matter where you're at, God has given you light. So we don't stumble. Oh, but I've stumbled my whole life. Then stop. Wake up. What's interesting when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, you know what they called the gate to the tabernacle? The way. You know what they called the gate to the Holy of Holies? The truth. You know what they called the veil that sat between the Holy of Holies and the outside? The life. And he's like, that's a straight line. It's, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. And when he resurrected, like the earth shook and the veil ripped in half. Like there's one path to get there and it's to guide our feet. I just, God's so stinking good. And there's no words that can express what kind of a mighty God we have. But Luke's doing an okay job with that. So to guide our feet, it's not just a prayer and stare, right? It's to actually walk. Wait, we don't stand still in this sort of thing either. We don't just say, oh, I love you, Jesus, I repent, and then do nothing different with our life. We actually change course. Even demons believe in Jesus, but it's more than belief in Jesus. It's a way that we walk. It's a path that we go. It's a direction that we head. So we can sit in darkness, I like this, or we can walk by the way of peace. You don't have to do anything to go to hell. Just sit and do nothing. And Satan loves that. If he can just entertain you all the way to the deathbed, good for him. He's thinking. Why does Satan even want us to go? Like, Because he hates the fact that God loves us. It, it bothers him. So you don't have to do anything to stay in darkness. You just have to exist and maybe eat once in a while. That's how you exist in darkness. But you need, you commit your life to Jesus. It implies salvation by grace and mercy because you've been redeemed. You've been, you, you've repented, you've been redeemed and you've given a remission from sins. That's the reaction to it. The path of the direction has a destination of peace in the Greek, to be at rest, to be tranquil, to be secure, to have some harmony. This is the thing that gets me. You meet people, even people that call themselves Christians, and their life is just total chaos. You're like, don't you want something different than just chaos all the time? Everything's drama. Everything's a problem. Just start on a different path. Simplify. It's a condition of peace here is to not be at war, according to the dictionary. Right? There's a path of peace where we're not always at war. That's the problem with sin. We do it our own way and we constantly miss the mark because we're at odds with God. Unlike John, who the, the God was just with this guy, right? And to not be at odds with God is to have actual peace with our creator. To hit the mark is to follow Jesus. The day spring gives light, an example we can see, to guide our feet, a path we should take. And people are, well, we're not saved by works. No, you're saved by the light, but then you walk according to the way. It doesn't save you, but it's the blessing of being free from other things. John's going to point us to the daylight that's going to rise. Get ready for that when we get to John. Verse 80, so the child grew, became strong in spirit. He was in the deserts. That's one S, which is the bad kind. We want If it's dessert that we eat, that's two S's because you want more of it. He was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. John grows up in one verse 80. He, he grows up. So Luke wraps up this narrative 
Part of why we don't get the stories of John the Baptist is I think Luke couldn't verify it with more than one source, right? He, could, he couldn't interview John the Baptist because he'd been beheaded, so he doesn't have source material for this, and as a scholar, he's not going to include it in his gospel. So pretty amazing birth. Zacharias and Mary have two witnesses of Gabriel. John's the immediate fulfillment of the prophetic word. Jesus will be the fulfillment to come of the prophetic word. Strong in spirit, he's alive. I like verse 80, strong in spirit. That seems to be counter to everything that the darkness stuff just talked about. Here's this guy, and I think this phrase means the same thing in English that it did there. You ever met people that are just strong in spirit? Yeah. Right? They just have force about them. And that's a good thing. Um, the word in the King James Version, if you're using that, is the word waxed, right? He was waxed, which means to be covered in God's spirit. Or this, the in, in Greek, the word there is noma, life. A current of air or a blast of breath. So you're either saying John the Baptist has really strong breath, or you're saying this guy just, when he spoke, it was just life from God coming out of his mouth. And you're just going, ah, yeah, I'll hang out in a desert and listen to this guy. Like, think of that for a church commute, by the way. You got to go all the way across a country to go hang out in a desert. So now you're in the desert where you just can go back home the same day. No, it's like a retreat center. You know, you're going out to Joshua Tree and you're not going there for the negative reasons. You're going there to hear somebody preach for a week or so. And you're like, oh, we're out of food. We better head back home. That's John the Baptist. He was that good of a teacher. He went to the one of the worst places on earth and people still came out to hear him talk. I like this guy. I don't think it means he had strong breath. I think it meant he had the strong spirit coming out of his mouth. He's waxed with the Holy Spirit. Spiritual attribute. That he was out in this place in the Judean wilderness. Um, people had to go get him. I think sometimes it's a sacrifice to get up and go do worship. And worship in the Bible is not just singing songs. It's hearing the word of God get taught. It's fellowshipping the saints and going through a little trouble, heading out to a desert to go do your worship is a kind of sacrifice that we make to God. We get up in the morning. Some of us do our hair, not this one. And you go out and you, and you get ready and you head out and you go there. And then the hope is the spirit of God just blesses the heck out of you. And for one day out of your week, you get a break. And you're like, I have to be something. I'm at equal terms with everybody here. I don't have to press anybody here. I don't have to do anything special. I can go out to that desert and just chill and get a tan. And that's John the Baptist. He went out to the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. What's a manifestation? Like that all of Israel starts to tune into this guy. Manifest, to be made known. That's an interesting kind of phrase that Luke uses. And I think for Luke, the manifestation to Israel is where Luke can pick up the story because as a historian, he's not going to take things he can't document. So he's got to just skip, eight, verse 80 just skips 30 years. So chapter chapter 2 coming up next, and we will get back to the story of Jesus because now Jesus has got to get born. And it's not Christmas time, and this is a nice time to do chapter 2, um, but I, most of us have kind of got parts of chapter 2 like memorized because they get read every Christmas. Um, so we're going to do it here in the off season and we're just going to do Christmas in the summer next week and we'll pick up where he left off. Let's pray. Lord God and King, we come before you and Lord, we're just humbled at what you've done, at the words that you put in Zacharias's mouth, the fact that they were recorded, that the village knew it. Lord, I love that we don't have to serve a God of mystery. We serve a God who has made himself known 
There is a mystery of Christ, a wonder to it all. But we don't have to doubt in that sense, Lord. We can have these kinds of documented pieces and we can just trust that you're there. Lord, I love that more than just an intellectual trust, we can see you at work in the lives of the people around us. We can see you at work in our own life. And Lord, I just pray for each person in this room that you bless them this week in such a way that they know you're present. And Lord, I pray that you give them hope. You give them a new life. Lord, that you birth in them something good. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that's struggling with sin and pain and hurt. Lord, that they hand that over to you, that they repent of their sin and they turn their life to live for you and give it a shot. And Lord, for those of us that backslide and have fallen short, help us to get up tomorrow morning and start new and start fresh as you've told us that each day is new every morning. And so Lord, we love you. We want to serve you. Help us to be brotherly kindness to the brothers and sisters in this room and to just be celebrating lunch together and just living together and having an afternoon, Lord. It's just a blessing and a refreshing time. Be with us. Be in this home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.